as we gather to worship God this morning, some words from Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O mighty one. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his names. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. As many of you will be aware, on Friday it was the funeral for Graham Maul, who was an amazing hymn writer and a wonderful person. Um, I had already chosen the hymns for this Sunday before the news of his death reached me just over a week ago. But there is perhaps a God-inspired tribute in there somewhere, as we'll be using a couple of hymns from the Iona community. And so as we gather, we sing our opening hymn, Pull Back the Veil on the Dawn of Creation, <coughs> Loves the Secret. join together in prayer and of course as is our custom and practice the prayer will conclude with the Lord's Prayer which we are invited to say in the language the form that feels the most normal and natural for us one day we might even sing it you never know but for today we'll just say it let's pray together 
strong and gentle God, as we gather in the name of your son, Jesus, whom we know as your Christ, we do so awed by the mystery of who and what you are. Our words are inadequate. <clears throat> Our concepts crumble. Our emotions are unreliable. Yet you welcome us, you embrace us, and you delight in us. For this we are thankful, though we cannot fully comprehend how or why it is so. Mighty and mysterious God, even as we offer our praises and express our wonder, we're aware of our own limitations and inadequacies. Our best is sometimes too little. Our feelings sometimes distress us. Our failings sometimes distress us. Our feelings sometimes mislead us. Yet you forgive us. You restore us and you continue to redeem us. For this we are thankful, though we cannot fully comprehend how or why it is so. Holy and glorious God, who we discover in the stories of Jesus and who meets us in the ordinariness of life, we bring you our praises and our prayers, joining our voices in the words Jesus taught his followers, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever.
I thought today we'd have a story because we haven't had a story for quite a long time. And it's got a brilliant title. It's called God Goes on Vacation. Um, I'm actually going to go up and sit with little people at the back so they can look at the pictures. But thanks to the microphone, you'll still be able to hear what I'm saying and you don't get to see my face. <laughs> That's got to be a bonus all round. God was very tired. Every day and every hour and every minute and even every second, children and grown-ups were lining up at God's cloud with all sorts of questions and problems. Even though he loved everybody and always helped them, God wished people would sometimes believe in their own inside magic. Poor God just never got a break. Then, one very rainy day, just as God was telling yet another little boy not to worry about his puppy who was lost, God got a great idea. I'll take a vacation, God said. God was very excited and telephoned Stardrop, an angel, who also needed a vacation. They looked at all the world to decide where to go. Let's go to the beach, said Stardrop. God thought that was a wonderful idea, and they started packing right away. And this is what God and Stardrop packed. One swimsuit, one pair of swimming trunks, two beach hats, two towels, three pairs of sunglasses in case one got broken, sunscreen, lots of books, some paints, a box of shells. Stardrop also packed a big picnic basket with God's favourite food, peanut dreams, and some pop, and some celery sticks. God put a big notice on the door. It read, gone to the beach. Then God wrote another note for all the children and grown-ups who would come to the door, telling them that he'd left some of his special magic in each of their hearts. This magic in their hearts was like having a little bit of God inside them, so they'd never really be alone. The little bit of God magic, which each one had hidden inside them, could help them be everything they wanted to be and to do all sorts of things. God and Stardrop flew to Florida. They had such fun. On the first day, God decided to be a lady God because God can do anything and be lots of different things. God wore a big yellow sun hat and looked great. She played with all the children, just like you would expect a mother god to play and have fun. God also made friends with a red crab who was called Clarissa and a spider called Samantha. On the second day, God was brown and ran on the beach in a new jogging suit. He met a friendly worm called Wentworth, who liked to be called Sir Wentworth Worm. This was because of the special work God had given him to do, wiggling through the soil on the earth, making it rich and fertile. So Sir Wentworth Worm felt important and always wore a crown. God felt free. He wished that all the children and grown-ups knew that they were free too. It made God very happy just to think about it. But God knew that for people to be free, they'd have to help each other and be very kind to each other. On the third day, God was a beautiful black colour and went water skiing with Stardrop. They took turns driving the boat. God wore a shiny blue water suit and only fell twice. God thought, it's okay not to make it every time. An octopus called Octavius waved his eight legs to God as he sped past. Samantha Spider waved all her eight legs too. Everyone got wet, even Sir Wentworth Worm, who was in God's pocket. On the fourth day, God was a lady again and danced all the way down the beach for an ice cream. God wished all the children in the world could have ice cream. 
Of course, people would have to share a lot more for that to happen. On the fifth day, God and Stardrop made sandcastles. God wore a crisp new Arab dress because Arabs know all about sand in their country. So Wentworth Worm and Clarissa Crab played too. Samantha Spider played swing from God's bucket. God enjoyed imagining what it was like to be in different countries and do things in different ways. Right at the beginning of the world, God was so excited about making everybody that he made them in many colours and gave them many languages. That's what makes the world such a beautiful place. It's fun to explore and get to know all kinds of people and countries. On the sixth day, it rained. So God stayed in the hotel thinking about himself while Stardrop went shopping. God enjoyed a bit of quiet time. God knew it was good to be alone sometimes just to think and to listen to the raindrops falling and the wind blowing. On the seventh day, God and Stardrop packed up to go home. God was very, very happy and very well rested. But back on the beach, God's new friends were not so happy. So Wentworth Worm, Samantha Fry Spider and Clarissa Crab all wanted to go to heaven with God and Stardrop. Octavius needed to practice some more swimming strokes and asked if he could come later. God said, OK, heaven's for everybody. God never left out anybody or anything. So off they all went, up, up, up into God's beautiful sky, past the clouds, past the sun, past the moon, past the stars, to the special place where God listens to everybody's heart. When God and Stardrop, Sir Wentworth Worm, Clarissa Crab, and Samantha Spider arrived, they found lots and lots of children and grown-ups dancing around God's cloud. There was great excitement. Everyone was cheering God. It was obvious they were feeling very happy and very free. They all shouted and did lots of other happy things, which made God feel really good. So Wentworth Worm wriggled in excitement. Everyone had found the God magic in their hearts. When they found the God magic, they knew they could be strong and do good things. Even though God was on vacation, God was with them as well. Wow! The children and even the grown-ups knew they didn't need to be afraid again because God was always with them. They just needed to know that and take care of each other. That was the magic they had found. God was very, very happy that he'd taken a vacation. So was Sir Wentworth Worm, Samantha Spider and Clarissa Crab. Stardrop showed her three new friends around heaven and welcomed them to the Spider Superdrome, Worm Wonderland and Crab Cove. Wow! They really liked heaven. And they all lived happily ever after. Well, whether God really goes on vacation or not, we do know that in Jesus, God did spend quite a lot of time on beaches. So let's sing, Lord, you have come to the lakeside.
now listen for some words from the book of Mark. In the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. A leper came to Jesus, begging him, and kneeling, he said to him, If you choose, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I do choose, be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. After sternly warning him, he sent him away at once, saying to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this, they were all overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint the body of Jesus. And very early, on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Those who were here last week will remember we have just begun a four-week series of sermons giving us some overview reflections on the four Gospels of the New Testament. 
There are lots of ways we could do that. We could have looked at the pictures of Jesus that they are presenting, and I vaguely recall doing that a number of years ago. But what we've chosen to do is to try to imagine each gospel is a standalone book and that we are cast away on a desert island with just this one book to look at. So this week, the island that we are on only has the gospel attributed to Mark, who is traditionally thought to have been the John Mark mentioned in the book of Acts, and or the young man who fled naked from the Garden of Gethsemane. We can't prove either of those, and we can't (coughs) disprove either of them. But in common with a lot of other ancient texts, we don't know who wrote it, and it's quite probably not an eyewitness account. It's probably written sometime later on. The majority of biblical scholars now think this is the earliest of the four Gospels, and that it draws more on oral sources, on stories, than on written accounts. It's noted for its simple and arguably very poor Greek, It makes it very popular for those trying to teach Koine Greek to undergraduate students. I was telling Holly the other day how on my very last Greek lesson, which was led by a rather scary Methodist minister, we had to to live translate two chapters of Mark. I think it was 14 and 15. I'd done this at home because I was very bad at Greek and I hid my translation under the table. And when it was my turn, I would just go (laughs) and read what I'd written under the table. It's it's supposed to be easy, but my Greek was really bad. But it is, it's simple Greek. A lot of it is in the present tense, and you get a very fast pace. Jesus does this, and immediately he goes and does that, and immediately something else happens. It's a very short gospel. It is the shortest of the four, and it is notable as much for what it doesn't include as what it does include. Whilst there have been those who have tried to suggest that Mark is a precy of either Matthew or Luke, that's generally not considered to be credible, and actually they have expanded on what he wrote, drawing on other sources which are long since lost. If you were to get a copy of Mark and take out all the chapters, numbers and verses, and take out the headings and try to read it, you would find it's not actually the greatest of read. It's clunky, it's, it's clumsy. And, and some modern scholars think that actually it's almost like a play, it's a drama, so you just get scenes. Uh, and we're trying to read it as a story, we're kind of not quite getting it right. Well, maybe so. When I was rereading it this week, what really struck me is it reminded me of the kind of stories that six and seven-year-olds Right. When I was little, you, you know, you'd go back on a Monday, first Monday morning after school holidays, and the teacher would say, "Right about your holiday," and you go, "I went for a walk with my dad, and then I had my tea, and then I went to bed, and then I got up, and then I did, and then and then." It's that kind of, of feel, really, and, and there's something kind of nice about that childlikeness of it, almost. So maybe Mark was not a great scholar. Maybe he just wasn't very good at languages. I have a lot of sympathy with that one. But he did his best to write in Greek a coherent summary of what he knew or had learned about Jesus. But who's he writing for? Well, surprise, surprise, we don't know. And surprise, surprise, scholars don't always agree. But most likely, it wasn't people who were Jewish. Because every time he uses an Aramaic phrase... He explains it, and we heard that in the, in the account of Jairus' daughter. Jesus said to little girl, Talitha, come. And then Mark says, which means, little girl, get up. So this wasn't their language, that, that maybe they were Greek speakers. Maybe Greek was the, in its poor form, was the one language they all shared. 
It's also thought quite likely this was written for a community experiencing persecution for their faith. There's quite a lot of material that sort of suggests it's speaking into that context. What I deduced after looking at a lot of commentators this week is that most of them seem to think it was meant to be read aloud. Whether it's a play, whether it's a book or a letter, you would read it out loud in community and quite possibly all at one go. That is very different from how Christians usually read the Bible today. Of course, there are a lot of ways we could go with this gospel, just like Matthew's gospel. They're really full, rich books, all sorts of things to explore. So I'm kind of hoping what I've picked is interesting, maybe helpful, that would be good. But also, you know, this kind of sense of just maybe this is God, what God's leading me to explore. I should also say um, at this point, I'm very grateful to Ian Birch, um, who pointed me to the most useful commentary I found this week. And it was quite late on. So I was frantically reading this thing on my Kindle because I didn't have time to order it in hard copy. Um, and it kind of got to the question I wanted to ask, and then its answer was not great. But it was a good commentary. Um, so thank you, Ian, very much for that. Whenever I start to write a sermon or a prayer, the most tricky bit is usually the first sentence. Beginnings matter. They draw us into what the writer has to say and set the scene for what follows. The trouble is, you see, I'm really a scientist. I was a scientist for half of my life. So I kind of write science-y things. I'm used to sort of opening anything I write with a little paragraph that says, this is what it's about and this is where it's going to go. And I suspect sometimes that makes the beginnings of my sermons a bit dull. So I spend a heck of a lot of time trying to think, how can I make this more interesting? It's fair to say that the author of Mark has chosen his opening sentence very carefully. The beginning of the good news, or gospel, about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In one brief sentence, he sets out a profound theological statement about who Jesus is and what this account will do. The beginning, arche. One of the first words you find in Genesis. It's also one of the first words you find in John. And some scholars think that Mark, like John, is trying to hook back into the Genesis story a little bit here. It's a new beginning that's being described here, this gospel, a new genesis. Something significant is happening, and this is the beginning of it. The beginning of the gospel. We all know that gospel means good news, and we know that traditionally, at the time of it was used, it was an ordinary word, and an evangelist uh, would be a person who went out and told the evangel the good news. And, and that somebody would announce there is something really important, really significant, and it's really positive. Boy, do we need some good news at the moment. But what is this good news about? It's about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's four words in Greek. Five, six, six in English. But in just these few words is a really powerful claim. This is the good news of Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Anointed One. Jesus is the one for whom they had been waiting, or whom the Jews had been waiting. And furthermore, this one is also the Son of God. I have to be honest, it sounds a little bit more like an essay title, doesn't it, than the beginning of a gospel? The good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's not a particularly exciting opening, but it's really important. And he goes on then to a very short quotation from the prophet Isaiah. So what is the beginning of the story? In this gospel, our story starts with the baptism of Jesus by John in the River Jordan. No interest whatsoever in birth stories. No interest in the childhood stories. Actually, it's the speaking from heaven by God. This is my son, 
at the moment of his, adopt, of his uh, baptism sorry, that is significantly important. So just suppose on our desert island we don't have anything other than Mark and we are trying to follow Jesus. We won't keep Christmas and we won't keep Epiphany because we don't know about them. And that really struck me because how much time and energy do people spend thinking about Christmas and Epiphany? Not the celebrations, I don't mean the kind of fun side of it, but gosh, the arguments people have over whether it happened or whether it didn't happen and whether it happened like this or whether it happened like that and how long was it between the shepherds and the kings? Mark's just going, well, do you know what? Not interested in any of that. They're not the most important things. Arguably, they're not even necessary. So the beginning is really important. He, he introduces us to a grown-up Jesus who is baptised by John and is named from, a, from heaven as the Son of God. If beginnings matter, then so do endings. And as we've heard this morning, this gospel really ends in an unsatisfactory way. If you do your reception history, the history of how the Gospels have been received and used, for an awfully long time in the church, people have used a longer ending. But actually, more recent scholarship and finding of older copies of, of parts of the Gospel show that actually what we probably first had was these women running away, saying nothing, because they were terrified. No post-resurrection appearances, no reinstatement of Peter, no death of Judas, no Great Commission, no ascension, nothing. So is that significant? And if it is, oh sorry, is it the case that some have suggested that actually it was longer and we lost the last page? Or is it actually that the writer never quite got round to finish it writing it off? You know, it kind of got posted before we'd finished it, they thought we'd finished it and they sent it. Or is it deliberate? Because the readers who um, were reading it or hearing it already knew kind of what happened next, so they didn't need to write it down. Well, guess what? We don't know. There's an awful lot of don't know when you start trying to look historically at the Bible and how we, we read it. But what we do know is in this shortest of Gospels, we also have the shortest time frame. It starts with a grown-up Jesus and it ends on Easter Sunday. That is it. That is the, the, the span of this Gospel. It starts with very bold declarations about its purpose. And then it kind of ends in a mess. It's untidy and the women seem to be despairing. For me, those things make this an interesting gospel to have a look at. And there are many, many themes, of course, I could have looked at. But one of the ones I really felt drawn to was the motive of secrecy that is expressed, if not consistently, at least frequently, by Jesus. And then just very briefly to try and think about that in relation to the end of the gospel. Throughout this gospel, there are many occasions where Jesus is recorded as saying, tell no one. And the people he says that to do the exact opposite. They go and tell everyone they can find. I was really struck this week when I was reading through the whole gospel in a kind of skippy form, how that contrasts with the women. So Jesus says, don't tell anybody. And they tell everyone. And the man at the tomb says to the women, go and tell. And they tell no one. And this was why I was hunting around lots of commentaries and why I was very grateful to the one that Ian found, uh, Ian pointed me to. Because actually, nobody seems to have done very much with this. Ian, the one Ian suggested was the one that did. Oh boy, was it a cop-out answer. Well, they obviously told people because the story got out. <laughs> yeah, that's really helpful. Thanks, Mr. Mr. Commentator. It was a good comment commentary, Ian. It was just... Didn't quite answer my question. So what is this thing about the secrecy? Well, as you can imagine, there's loads, and I'm going to have to go quite quickly because time is marching on. 
the most obvious strand of secrecy in this gospel is the command to silence. The man healed of leprosy is told only to go and see the priest and not tell anybody. Jairus and his wife, whose daughter is raised from the dead for goodness sake, and there are people outside wailing, is told, well, don't tell anybody about this. But the, the cured leper can't keep it to himself. And of course, because of people keep telling about this, Jesus finds there are places he can't go. He's mobbed by people. People just keep coming to him for healing. And so he can't go where he wants. He is constantly trying to get to do what he feels called to do, and people are coming to him. He also commands silence of those he exorcises, and perhaps peculiarly, when Peter is asked by Jesus, and who do you say I am? And he answers with the right answer. Jesus says, keep quiet. Don't tell anybody about this yet. Strange, isn't it? This Messiah that seems not to want anybody to know who he is or what he's doing. A second strand is that Jesus teaches his disciples in private, away from prying eyes or listening ears. And the disciples don't come out of this gospel smelling of roses. In fact, I was in a, at, at a, my course that I'm doing yesterday, and, and I, I referred to Jesus as being a bit snarky, or narky, actually. He accuses the, the poor disciples of being thick, because they don't get what he's trying to tell them. And actually, we also have a Jesus, according to this gospel, who tells stories, he tells parables, to deliberately hide what he's saying, so that most people think, well, that's a nice story, but they haven't got a clue what he's on about. And of course, there are times when Jesus goes off on his own, times to pray, times to rest, times about which we don't even know what he was doing. So what's all this about? Why the secrecy? Why are people not to tell? Why does he talk in riddles? Why does he teach people in private? Perhaps he doesn't want to become too well known too quickly, especially as a healer or a wonder worker, which would bring him to the attention of the authorities, whether that's Jewish or Roman. But then he feeds 5,000 and he feeds 4,000. And those are very public. And he doesn't tell anybody to be quiet there. So that doesn't quite work. Perhaps he realises that the kind of Messiah people think they want is not who he is and what he is. Perhaps he realises that they think he will lead an uprising against Rome. And actually, if that got out, he would never be able to do what it was he came to do. Or perhaps he has a sense that we're not quite there yet, time-wise. People are not going to get what this is about. And so, actually, until the time is right, I want to keep a low profile. And maybe all of those, to some degree, are interrelated. That he doesn't want to become too popular too quickly, that people are not understanding what kind of Messiah he is. And actually, because of that, it's not yet time. All of that made me ask myself, well, what kind of Messiah do I think Jesus is? What do I understand and what do I not understand about his mission? Am I one of those dim disciples? Yes, probably. But what time am I living in? And is it a time in which Jesus' identity as the son of God can be revealed? And that's why I found myself drawn back to the women. The women who are terrified when they're told to share the good news. Go and tell this amazing news, they're told. Oh, no, not me. If I'm honest, my go-to is to say nothing. In fact, I have even over the years joked that the reason God called me to ordained ministry was because, frankly, that was the only way I was ever going to say anything, because I was quite good at being the frightened woman who ran away, didn't want to offend people, didn't want to upset people, didn't want to mislead people, didn't really want to do this thing that I was being told to do. What if people were put off by what I had to say? Or... 
what if actually what I share is my creation of a Messiah, the kind of Messiah that I want Jesus to be? And what if I've got it so badly wrong, what Jesus is all about? What if it's not the right time? But what if it is? What if it is? Part of what I love about the Gospel of Mark is it has these bumbling disciples that don't get it and they get it wrong. And it has frightened women who run away and do nothing. There is nobody who comes out of this looking really great. And yet we are told very clearly this is good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Messiah who is the Son of God. Perhaps, just perhaps, what we take away from this desert island is that juxtaposition, that tension of our fallibility, our misunderstanding, misappropriation, and God's faithfulness and God's trust and God's hope. Perhaps we carry those together from this this desert island, not as terrified followers incapable of speech, but as people who are encouraged by this story that actually, do you know what? Nobody can fully understand. But it's good news. It's great news. It's the best news about the God who comes to us in Jesus and leads us on into the messiness of a story that isn't yet finished. The story is still to be continued. And so we sing again one of the beautiful Iona hymns that seems to actually take us on from there. Oh, where are you going? And can I come with you?
So um, some of you, uh, Grace, I think especially, know that um, my practice is to write the intercessions in the morning of the service. And sometimes this spills over into choir and sometimes into the service itself. This morning's prayers of intercession are a result of me having two ideas and not really being able to pick between them, so just ending up doing both. So um, I hope you'll bear with me. Um, the first thing is that following the untimely death of Graham Mall, whose funeral was on Friday, I really wanted to use a prayer written by the Wild Goose Resource Group of which he was a part. Um, we've used this prayer before. And as with much of the material produced by the Wild Goose Resource Group, despite having been published in 2015, it reads as though it could have been written in response to global events this week. The second thing I wanted to do, and it's something that um, I sometimes do when I lead intercessions, is to bring some quotes directly from the news this week to really ground us in what's happening currently in our world our world that God loves so much. Now, I don't quite know whether these two things hang together, <laughs> so bear with me. In an attempt to try to make them hang together a little bit better, um, we will use the response that's taken from the Wild Goose Resource Group. So the response to God send your spirit is renew the life of the earth. God send your spirit Renew the life of the earth. Let us pray. Because you, God, love the world, because in Christ you walked it, we dare to pray, God, send your spirit. Renew the life of the earth. As devastating bushfires continue to burn across Australia, we hear the words of Australian journalist Bianca Nogrady, who has had to leave her home as a result of the fires. She imagines people returning to their homes in the future. The lucky ones give thanks and get on with their life. The unlucky ones grieve, rage, shake their fists at fate and rebuild on the same ground but for how long god send your spirit renew the life of the earth we remember before you god the people of iran we have heard from our friends that everyone in iran is crying every day we confess that we do not always know how to respond to their tears. As we add our own tears to theirs, we ask you to show us how to respond. God, send your spirit. Renew the life of the earth. As Sinn Féin and the DUP re-enter devolved government in Northern Ireland after three years, I share with you the words of someone I never thought I'd quote in church. Yesterday, the First Minister of Northern Ireland, Arlene Foster, addressed the Assembly at Stormont saying, I'm not sure that we will ever agree on much about the past, but we can agree that there was too much suffering and that we cannot allow society to drift backwards and allow division to grow. God, send your spirit. Following the BMS World Mission Prayer Diary, we pray for Mozambique. As this nation continues to recover from two cyclones which hit in 2019. BMS World Mission has been involved in recovery efforts alongside their well-established justice and education work. Working alongside Mozambican partners, BMS runs development projects, leadership training and education programmes. We pray for the ongoing work of BMS in Mozambique. God, send your spirit. Renew the life of the earth. The Scottish Baptist Union invites us to pray this week 
for Alexandria, Alloa and Olness Baptist churches. We pray that they will be faithful witnesses to the hope of Jesus in their local communities. We give thanks also for the newly accredited ministers within our union and pray for those who will gather at the pre-accredited ministers conference in Pitlochry this week. God, send your spirit. Renew the life of the earth. In our own Hillhead family, we pray for Paul, Rico, Leo and Ailey. We give thanks for all that they give to the life of our church, some of which you can see in front of you on a Sunday morning and some of which is behind the scenes. Where would we be without them? We give thanks for Leo as he helps to shape our worship on the worship team and increasingly takes a leadership role in worship on Sundays. We pray for Ailey, um, who has blessed us recently with her flute playing, um, is out just now at the Bible class, of which she's an active member. And we pray for Paul and all he does. God, send your spirit. Renew the life of the earth. And to the words of the Wild Resource Group, to awaken the minds of those in power to the realities of those whom they govern, to confront the arrogance of the privileged with the vulnerability of the poor. God, send your spirit. Renew the life of the earth. To engage the fragile state of the planet with those who carelessly abuse it. To let the pain of those who are hurting awaken the caring potential in us all. God, send your spirit. To eradicate the distance between our convictions and commitments, our potential and our performance, our prayers and our politics, our faith and our discipleship, God, send your spirit. Renew the life of the earth. Convince us, gracious God, that all matter matters and that all is up for redemption. And since in Jesus you destined all to be changed and made new, enable us to be agents of your purpose, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. loving God who comes to us in Jesus and by your spirit. As we bring these gifts of money, we also bring our very selves and ask that all may be employed to renew the life of the earth. Amen. So we have good news for a hurting world and we sing of that in our closing hymn. We have a gospel to proclaim, good news for all throughout the earth.
good news, God, as we leave the comfort and safety of this place to return to the complexity and uncertainty of daily life. May we do so encouraged by the stories of Jesus and his fallible followers. Give us the courage, the resilience, the hope and the love that we need to sustain us today and always. Thank you.